We did 36 reps where we let firefighters simply do whatever they thought was right. We told them, here are the objectives. We'll suppress the threat. Now I need you to control the hemorrhage, extricate the victim, and prep them for transport. Don't go here. Don't care how. We're just going to let you go. We're going to put a proctor on every victim. We're going to time everything, record everything, videotape it, and we're going to see what type of progress you guys make. Firehouse Vigilance presents the Weekly Scrap a podcast dedicated to the never-ending fight against complacency. Cooley War, Firehouse Vigilance, it is Weekly Scrap number 206. My guest tonight is Eric Sailors. He is currently the fire chief of the El Cerrito Kensington Fire Department. He has 28 years in the fire service. He has worked his way up through all the ranks with a long career at the city of Sacramento. Paramedic, hazmat specialist, special rescue technicians. Now, I'm going to try and get through this part here. He has two associate's degrees, a bachelor's in finance, a master's from the Naval Postgraduate School, no less. Oh, yeah, and why not throw in a doctorate in organizational change and leadership? Um, He is one of the smartest people I have ever interviewed. He teaches fire chief classes for the state fire marshal. He has published over 20 articles on homeland security, fire service topics. Uh, During this time, he has personally developed and proctored over 200 intentional mass casualty incident drills and presented on the topic of active shooters to the Center of Homeland Security and Defense. Chief Eric Sailors, it is my honor to have you back on the scrap for episode number 206. Welcome, my brother. Thank you. I look forward to this. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to dig into some interesting topics. I think we're going to Maybe ruffle some feathers, but we're going to find the truth. We're going to uh, talk about some real-life experiences, uh, a lot of data, a lot of drills, and what we found over a seven-year study. I love it. I absolutely love it. Is there anything I missed in the intro, anything you would like to add? Yeah, yeah, the lead-out, firefighter in training. Firefighter in training. I love that. You're right. I absolutely did miss the lead-out. Beautiful. Audience, please, please get your questions primed and ready for Eric. Um, we will be pulling the questions out of the chat and throwing them at him. So, so get them ready. This is a this is a topic that has a lot of uh, data that is going to be coming at you. Um, it should be a good one. Quick announcements: If you are not a member of the Vigilantes, go and join. It's the Cool Kids Club. The latest thing we are doing together is the V90. They're beta testing the V90. We're doing it together. Seventy-five of us testing out this V90 program. It's a ton of fun. Um, and then, of course, the Vigilante After Party, which I meant to ask Eric about. But we do it. It's 20 minutes after the show is over. We get together after the scrap, and you get to join us, and then they critique how well you did, and you get to hear all their thoughts and, and whatnot. So you're invited to that after the show. It's only 20 minutes long. Um, the Vigilante After Party. So go to firehousevigilance.com and sign up if you're not already a member. Um, on to the sponsors, Keyhose, the hose experts. Check them out online at keyhose.com and follow them on Facebook. Affordable Drill Towers, home of the Affordable Drill Tower and the Affordable Standpipe Prop. It is firefighter owned and operated. You can pump and roll using the Affordable Standpipe Prop. The Affordable Standpipe Prop fits through most classroom doorways for standpipe theory, and then you roll it out to the parking lot and you can pump to it. It comes with six standpipe valves that can be upgraded to PRVs or customized to whatever you have in your jurisdiction. Call Steve, 844-55-TOWER, or drop an email to info at AffordableDrillTowers.com. FirestationFurniture.com provides a complete line of quality furniture for your firehouse. It's firefighter-owned and operated. They understand the strain firefighters put on furniture and offer furniture that's built to last. 
Visit www.firestationfurniture.com for more information. And with that being done, of course, I love Flame Decon. I use it every day. Flame Soap, the black soap. Uh, with all that being said, we're ready to kick it off and get to the scrap itself. Let me read you a few comments. Let's roll Sunday Fun Day from Bradley Valiancourt. Let's let's go. Going to be another amazing scrap from Colton Robertson. Let's go. Let's go. There's multiple let's go. It's been a bit since been able to catch a live event. That comes from Jim Platt. Carpe Fuego says LFG. And Logan Hinkle said, checking in from Little Rock. So all across the country, they're logging in. Get your questions in. And with that being said, Eric, here we go. I loved having you on the first time. We talked about uh, your paper and your your work you did on, on like quantifying the value of a firefighter on a rig. And it was really, um, like, like I said, cerebral and over my head, but I loved it. And uh, this time I saw a Facebook post you made, I think it was just a few months ago in June. And I believe because you were chosen to present the empirical findings and the ultimate outcomes of a seven-year uh, active shooter response study at MSAC in San Diego, where you presented that. The key findings, and we're going to get into those as we go along, uh, but man, in terms of intentional mass casualty incidents especially, you are the subject matter expert, man. I'm super pumped about this. So with all that, let's jump right off into it. And as I ask these questions, I'm counting on you to fill in the blanks when I when I am not uh, as articulate as I should be. Uh, I'm going to start off with MCI versus IMCI. The difference between, and that's just my jumping off point, but you can take it whatever direction you would like. Yeah. So we're accustomed to mass casualty incidents. And right now we're going to call them a slow moving MCI, right? Rolled over bus, a derailed train, a sick building syndrome where you have 50 victims that you have to organize, treat, triage, and then transport. You're effectively doing a lot of the hospital's work on the front end by sorting these patients into proper categories, treating them, and then slowly trickling them into the hospitals based on where they want them to go, right? This is a slow-moving MCI where nobody's going to die in the first 45 minutes. That is what the fire service comes from. That's where most of our policies and procedures are written on. That's where a mindset tends to think about is a large number of patients. That's entirely different than what we're faced with now with an intentional mass casualty incident. That's when you have somebody purposely doing something. We'll call them an intelligent actor. But now you no longer have 50 walking wounded. You now have 50 critical that are going to die in the next 45 minutes. That's a fast-moving MCI. Now, all of a sudden, all of the things that you thought about organizing patients, they all go out the window because now you are dealing with victims. They are all on the clock and your principle, the problem is time. Everything that you do has to be revolved around time. If you're doing something that is slowing you down, then you are screwing the call up. You are moving in the wrong direction. So to get an entirely different frame of mind out of the normal MCI, what we're used to We're used to bringing people to tarps and organizing them. Well, now you're dealing with a fast-moving incident that needs to be mitigated immediately. So the principle of the problem is time. Time. You're, You're looking at victims that now have holes punched in them, and they are bleeding to death. There typically are no walking wounded because the walking wounded have left. When the gunfire happens... They're gone. They flee. Victims that you're left with are the ones that can't leave. They're bleeding to death on the sidewalk, right? Or inside the building. So now your mindset shifts to victims, not 
locations. And now all of your operational objectives change. Operational. Okay, so I, there's two two directions to go there. Well, what, uh, whatever rabbit hole you want to go down, I'm ready. Let's let's talk first on victims versus patients, because that's a that's a yeah. when I first read that in the, uh, the the chapter you shared with me, I was that that was a new. I, it shouldn't have been such an eye opener, but it really was just the concept difference between the two. So go ahead and dig into what you mean when you say patients versus victims. Yeah, so patients. Patients fall underneath your normal protocols. They require patient care. You typically have a high ratio of caregivers to patients, right? right. Victims are in a threat area. We'll call it IDLH, someplace that is going to kill them quickly. They need to be removed from that threat area immediately prior to receiving any care. Right? So you think of victims inside of a burning house. Nobody wiggles their way into a burning house, finds a victim in a bedroom, and starts triaging them or drops a triage tag on them or ties a band around them, right? What right. you do is you remove them from the threat zone. Same with trench rescue, confined space rescue, drowning. Everything is revolved around getting the person out of the environment. So these are victims. Now, victims in these events, they also present you with a different problem. It's a flip-flop on the ratio. When you're typically thinking about four caregivers to one patient, you're now going to be upside down. You're going to be four victims to one caregiver, right? Right. Now, victims, they just simply, they receive the minimal life-saving care that they need in order to survive the event, and then they need to get to definitive care. They need surgery. From time of injury to surgery, you're looking at a 45-minute window before most of them who are savable die. Right. So you have to get them to surgery as soon as possible. A lot of the things that you can do in the field aren't going to have much of an impact on them. So once you realize that when you roll up on either a bombing or a shooting or a mass stabbing or a vehicle into a crowd, you are dealing with victims. Victims will eventually transfer into patients when you get enough caregivers there and you're in a controlled environment, but they start off as victims. Initially, you have to have a we have victims mindset. That's what we're going That after. is right. They need to, in a, in a shooting event, they need hemorrhage control, massive hemorrhage control, and they need rapid extrication. No triage, no sorting, no talking. If you're dead, you're staying here. If you're alive, you're getting bleeding control and you're coming with me. First come, first serve. We're getting you out of the threat zone and we're prepping you for transport. Wow. No, I, I, again, uh, no tree. I got to write that. I got to take good notes here. No tree. So many right. Operational priorities change. You said that. And I want to, I want you to dig in a little bit there before I go after the, the no triage. Uh, and, but go ahead. Yeah. So operational priorities on an IMCI come out of the Hartford consensus, right? So the Hartford consensus, not a lot of people are familiar with the process that was followed there, but you're coming after Sandy Hook. We have 26 victims shot, someone who kills themselves within five minutes, right? And after looking at Sandy Hook, um, the group's come together to figure out how the fire service could have done better. Because you've now transitioned past law enforcement pushing the pause button after Columbine. Law enforcement engage, is engaging, and now you're trying to figure out how do you get fire to do better. Well, the consensus is a discussion between orthopedic surgeons and your um, medics that operate in the field, right? So these are your special forces medics, typically your senior 18 deltas that operate on a Green Beret team or your medics on the SEAL team or your medics on the Delta teams, right? Okay. They actually developed what's called TCCC, Tactical Casualty Combat Care, after the Black Hawk Down event. And they went in a direction of getting off of what doctors tell them to do in the hospital and moving to what actually works in the field, right? So they created a document called TCCC. 
And they bring that knowledge and that document to the orthopedic surgeons after Sandy Hook, and they come together with a consensus. These are the operational objectives in order that have to happen in order for people to survive. Operational objective number one, threat suppression. In other words, stop the killing, right? right. That is all law enforcement. Yeah, operational, okay. operational objective number two, hemorrhage control, massive hemorrhage control. That's it. So you're going from kill the guy to stopping the bleeding. Then operation. And that's us. That's the rescue response. That's us. Yep. Once you're past kill the guy, now it's all on us. Hemorrhage control, rapid extrication, a quick assessment, and then transport. And when they refer to a quick assessment in context, what they're looking for is tourniquet checks, chest seal checks. Because tourniquets tend to move during transport, right? They're not looking for what we think of as a full primary and secondary. That's patient care. This is victim care, right? So typically when tourniquets get applied in the field and you put somebody on a drag sled or you carry them out, that tourniquet tends to move. So they're looking for a reassessment of the tourniquet. Also, tourniquets tend to hurt worse than the wound itself. So victims actually loosen them on their own. Yeah. So that assessment is, oh, did that tourniquet stay in place? Is it still working? Do I need a chest seal? Is this patient going to survive the drive to the hospital? That's what they refer to as assessment. And then transport, get them to surgery. Because there's not a whole lot you can do in the field. Most of the critical shots are coming to non-compressible areas, right? Shots to the abdominal area that require surgery. There's nothing you can do for it. Shots to the chest area, non-compressible area. The chest wall will help you a little bit, but they're still on the clock. They need to get the surgery. So anything that you do that delays them to getting the surgery, including triage tags, triage ribbons, any primary and secondary, that's just simply slowing them down to getting to the hospital. Speed. So, so time and speed seems to be of the absolute essence. Time is the principle of the problem. Yes. The second you get a hole punched in you, how quickly can you get to surgery? And 45 minutes is that, that I don't want to say golden window because that's been used too much, but that's the target. You know, so 45 minutes come from the Vietnam wound study, right? Okay. So it's called the Vietnam wound analysis. Uh, it was published in 1978. It studied 17,000 wounded soldiers. And that's where we actually get the golden hour from. And what the conclusions out of that, one of them is that most of your savable patients are going to die within the first 45 minutes. Half of them are going to bleed to death in the first 10, right? But if they're going to survive past 45 minutes, they're probably going to do it on their own, right? Those that are going to die, they're dead already. But the ones that are savable, they're in that window, 45 minutes. So what you don't want to do is you don't want to have a savable patient screw around for an hour and let them die. Does right. that make sense? No, no. Yeah. So, so time is the principle of the problem with this. Uh, priorities. Uh, and you, you touched on the no triage because that really does just comes down to the lack of time. Really does just come down to lack of time. So what we found in the first uh, high number of drills that we participated in and witnessed was that the typical tactics are – not only to go into a diamond formation and work your way towards the victims, but then come across the victims and triage them with a triage tape or a ribbon, right? You typically have one minute to triage each victim. You go from victim to victim. And then when they're all triaged, you call for an additional rescue task force from the diamond formation with four more firefighters in to then start to treat. And then you start to build a corridor to bring them out. 
If you actually time those drills, and I've timed uh, a countless number of them, you hit about 45 minutes before treatment starts. Oh, wow. If you think of something like, if you just do the math on the Pulse nightclub, 56 victims, one minute to triage each person, you're past an hour before you've tied a tag on anybody. We also assessed the firefighter's ability to actually tie those ribbons in a high-stress environment. So we brought in a combat psychologist. Um, her name is Sarah Jackson. She focuses on EOD and special forces guys, and she uses a tactic called stress inoculation training. Okay. Well, we used her principles to study how firefighters do in high-stress environments when they go into gross neurological default. To set it in plain language, they suck at triaging when they're stressed out. I watched them struggle tying ribbons and knots and ribbons, and they took longer than one minute. We were much better suited with just having them put a tourniquet on and get the hell out of the threat zone with the victim. Nice, nice. Now, that makes sense. I want to go into the drills because you referenced the drills, and, and I need uh, people to understand. Um, explain the drills, basically. What? what yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, gonna, uh, you know what? I got to tell you a story. Okay. That's, okay. That's our human remembers stuff. They're narrative creatures. I'm just going to tell you a story. So um, I worked for an agency that was involved in a legal battle between labor and administration. And labor is typically right. They threw up the red flag and they got attorneys involved. And what their beef was, was they said that the RTF, a rescue task force, as we as we had in the region have been drilling on for a few years, was in, completely ineffective. Um, they said it put their firefighters in danger. So they actually hired an attorney, put a cease and assist against administration. Fortunately, administration oh, wow. had some very smart chiefs and realized they might be right. Um, so I actually had... No initial interest in this. I got drug into it in 2015. Okay. So I got pulled on and said, all right, look, you need to solve this problem. So that was my assignment was to figure out what was happening. So we started to assess the drills and we watched and I started timing them and we put together a research team. The research team actually consisted of a senior 18 Delta who was a special forces medic uh, he's got 20 years experience. We brought in Sarah Jackson as the combat psychologist. Uh, we brought in a few battalion chiefs and operational experts and then people like me as a researcher to look at this problem. And what we found was that, yeah, the labor was right. Diamond formation was completely ineffective. It was way too slow. It wasn't moving victims fast enough. So we backed up and said, okay, if we threw out all the rules and just went with the real problem, what solution would we find? And we did 36 reps where we let firefighters simply do whatever they thought was right. We told them, here are the objectives. We'll suppress the threat. Now I need you to control the hemorrhage, extricate the victim, and prep them for transport. Don't cohere. Don't care how. We're just going to let you go. We're going to put a proctor on every victim. We're going to time everything, record everything, videotape it, and we're going to see what type of progress you guys make. So we did this experimental process where we let them run a drill. We gave them initially 17 victims. 17 victims go in there, assess them, bring, uh, control the hemorrhage, bring them out, and prep them for transport. And uh, we timed them. And after each one, we had a revisit of, okay, what could you have done better? What do we need to learn from? Out of those things that we learned that we got rid of a lot of the stuff in what is our normal POW bag, the bag that we brought in, we got rid of almost everything except glow sticks and uh, tourniquets. Uh, because glow sticks were used for marking the dead. Uh, we started using a drag sled because the 
real hard problem was actually moving the victims. Okay. Everybody thought that if you get 17 victims in a 200 foot drag, you can simply carry them. Well, you get a few, but then you tire out. Right. And we know now empirically with a crew of four, you get about four victims out before they're tapped out. If you throw in an actual drag device, uh, something what's something like it's called a Foxtrot. It's a simple little drag device that is carried on the bottom of a Ranger's APAC. It's used in combat. They cost about 200 bucks. You throw those in and now a crew of four can handle 10 victims and they're very fast. Our times went from 45 minutes with a 17 victim load and a 200 foot drag from 45 minutes to 12 as our slowest average of nine minutes, fastest of six. So we then ramped it up. We put them in a building. We mopped up the Pulse nightclub. We put 26 live victims in there. We ran it through another 36 times. Their average times were nine minutes to the ambulances. And then all victims transported 26 minutes. We used live victims, not mannequins. We wanted to get real weight, real people. Uh, We ramped it up one more time. We put them in a real nightclub with disco lights, two dance clubs laid out very similar to the Pulse nightclub. Ran it again, and we were at all victims on the street in six minutes, all victims transported in 26. Oh, wow. So our times just got ridiculously fast. After those, just throwing out out the rule book and saying, firefighters, go be firefighters and figure out the best way to do it. That's exactly right. I'm going to give you the objective. The objective is to control hemorrhage. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. Just meet the objective. Right. And they invented their way through it. And everything that they invented, we wrote down and recorded. And then we started to work it into policy, right? And we just got better and better from 2015 to 2016 to 2017. And then eventually we started training every cop in Sacramento, which was a heavy lift. So we did a drill every Friday for an entire year. And then we did a drill every Thursday for an entire year. And the firefighters just got faster and smarter and they would come back with their ideas and they say, Hey, you know what? This is how we're going to prep the tourniquets. This is how we're going to carry them in the bag. This is where we're going to carry the bag. This is where we're going to carry the Foxtrot. We need this equipment and we would go buy in the equipment. And so, you basically and- melted it down to glow sticks and tourniquets. Glow sticks, tourniquets, and a few chest seals, but we got okay. away from putting chest seals on in- inside the threat zone. Because uh, we realized it was just too tactically hard. Um, when the firefighters went into gross neurological default, it was just get the tourniquet on and get the victim out. We, we, we videotaped a bunch of drills and we could see some of our best operator firefighters go in and just tunnel vision. And it was hard for them to focus, especially on the Pulse nightclub drill when we had the music pounding. We actually brought in the real DJs and the disco ball spinning and everybody's cell phone was ringing. So all the victims' cell phones were ringing. The ones that were alive were screaming at them. We said, all right, you know what? Look, get the tourniquet on. The chest seal is too much to ask. If if we're going to do a chest seal, we'll do it out on the street when they're, when they're in, the, in the evac zone. So mm-hmm. that made, that prevented the... Uh, pow bag from getting yard sailed. Right. So the firefighters, uh, you know, they created that on their own. They, the first few drills, they went in there and they tried to pull equipment out. And then eventually, you know, equipment freaking everywhere on the ground. And they said, you know what, let's get rid of all this shit. I just want tourniquets and I want glow sticks and I'll have a few chest seals in there for me when I get out. Right on. Right on. Okay. Uh, a couple questions coming at you. Uh, first one's coming from Jim Platt. And a, and I don't I don't know if you have an answer for this one or not in your data and your research, but how do we get past the it won't happen here mentality, especially if the fire department is training, but the local PD refuses to play well with others? 
Yeah, so the it won't here happen. Um, I'm not going to tell you it is going to happen, but I look at risk as a series of threats, consequences, and vulnerabilities, right? So if you have threats in your area, then you have some massive vulnerabilities to it happening. And your threats are churches, schools. Unlike what I originally thought, it's typically not your large arenas. So I used to service uh, the Golden One Center in Sacramento. And after looking at that, we realized uh, these perpetrators, they like soft targets. Uh, one level of security tends to push them away. But if you have churches or schools or any farmer's markets or math ga mass gatherings, the threat is there. If you're not up on your game, then you are incredibly vulnerable to walking down the street of Uvalde, Texas, right? You are one event away from that happening. And that is not where you want to be. You don't want to be held criminally liable for negligence on screwing a call like this up. So the fact that it won't happen, I'm not going to tell you it, it is. Right. You know, there's 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 one a week. But if you have mass gatherings and if you're not up on your game, you are going to feel terrible if you don't know how to do this. Um, so law enforcement, because that was the second part of this. Right, question. right. Yeah, I had uh, I had similar resistance, and I can just give you my experience. Be persistent. I was persistent for over a year and a half. I just ran drills without them because they said they didn't have time. They didn't want to pay the overtime. They weren't interested. And we just kept running the drills. When we ran the drills, we brought out our CERT members. We brought out our EOC members, some of our elected officials. And when it got public notoriety, the pressure came around on law to play. And then all of a sudden law was involved. Nice. And oddly enough, once they got involved, they became a leader and they pushed, they pushed ahead with us. Uh, but that's, that's my advice is don't give up. Be persistent. If you do drills for two years and they're not interested, just keep doing them um, and try everything you can to get public pressure for them to come around. Legally, you're supposed to do one drill a year, right? With law enforcement. Okay. okay, so I, I hope that was clear. And no, no, absolutely. Clear absolutely. Uh, the Foxtrot, you mentioned the Foxtrot, but uh, people said, uh, Carpe Fuego says, I reckon Mega Movers, Fat Sacks, those would work. Yes, no, maybe so. Obviously, maybe not as well, but. Try them all. Try them all. The firefighters try them all. And, uh, you know, you get, get over 500 firefighters in Sacramento and they're, incre they're incredibly creative. So the Mega Movers, um, so I want you to do just the basic ratios in your head. Mega mover with a victim, you're at a minimum of a three to one, three people per victim to carry, right? Probably a four to one on a mega mover if you're going to pick them up and carry them. If you're going to drag them on the mega mover, you're going to get one pole before it tears through, right? Especially if you're going across asphalt, it's going to eat that mega mover immediately, right? Same with carryalls and tarps. You're either carrying them or you're dragging them. If you're carrying them, you're at a three to one or four to one ratio. If you're dragging them, you're going to get one pole before you're torn through. We tried backboards, very cumbersome, dragging them as well. Um, it's the patients tend to, victims tend to fall off them, right? Tried gurneys. Uh, gurneys were just too slow. Tried stair chairs, uh, too slow to get the victim in and out and to roll it. Right. So how we got to the Foxtrot was uh, we dipped into our USAR cash and pulled out a sked, a rescue sked, large plastic rollout rescue sked. And I was... I'm the guy that doesn't say no to anything. I'm like, yeah, try it. Like you want to, yeah, you think it's going to work. So on one of these drills we're, we're running, they threw the sked in 
And the sked worked. It was a game changer. The challenge was, was it was so wide that it was cumbersome and it kept rolling up on people and it was hard to turn corners on. Well, I'm standing next to the senior 18 Delta with all these years of combat experience. And he looks at me and he goes, that's a Foxtrot. And I looked at him and said, what the hell is a Foxtrot? He goes, well, that's what's carried on the bottom of a Ranger's APAC. And that's what we use in combat. And you can buy them online for 200 bucks. So we took that sked that we tore up that day because we were just consuming equipment in this drill, trying to figure out the right answer. And we cut it down into the narrow shape of a foxtrot. We put some straps on it. We threw it in the drill next day, and it changed everything. Now, all of a sudden, you went from a four-to-one to a one-to-one. One Vic per rescuer drag, right? Now you got a crew of four. You got two throwing on tourniquets two dragon victims, and the time started to plummet. So I went out and bought a Foxtrot, actually with my own money, came to my house, I opened it up, I messed around with it. Uh, then I went into my budget, we bought another 30, threw them into the game, and that's when we realized, oh, the problem was actually moving the victims. Right. So um, the Foxtrots, they're not perfect, but they work. And we did try everything from wool blankets to mega movers. And it's all about ratios and time. Just letting firefighters just try everything and see what works. Uh, tons Man, of interest. they solve problems. Tons of interest in something you said, which is the state or maybe state. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's a California thing. But a lot of people say, or I've had like 10 questions come by saying, please explain the once per year training. Wow. Uh, with with PD, is that a state by state? Is that federal? Is that a state? yeah? It's an tons AB of questions number. about it. Yeah, I can't remember. It's an AB number. It's a it's a California law. So I'm um, I'm sorry. Um, I wish I could recite that off of uh, off of verse. Yeah. Well, just being able to say it's it's state of California. Yeah. You know, it may not be where you're at. So state by state. There you go. Uh, Carpe says, dang, I love this man's mentality. The focus of efforts and resources isn't on his own perceptions, expectations, but solely on mission accomplishment, period. It's the only ethical way to be. Absolutely. I would I would entirely agree. As a leader, your job is to set visions and objectives. Firefighters, they're the tactical experts. I know I was. When I was a firefighter, the last thing I needed was a battalion chief to tell me how to do it. Just tell me what you want done, and I will go do it. Well, that is how I continue to operate now. And that is how that agency was met with massive success, taking the reins off the firefighters and saying, look, very clearly, I need you to control the bleeding and get the victim from A to B and prep them for transport. They will solve that problem. I love it. I love it. And don't forget, he is a doctor. Uh, he <laughs> is a doctor. Right. And he's a doctor of leadership, no less. I mean, organizational leadership. So he is speaking from a position of authority. Uh, I love it, brother. I absolutely love it. Um, Mark alone wants to know any recommendations for storing ballistic gear. Most of us are strapped for space in our rigs and we have already seen some wear damage on our helmets just from vibration and being stowed behind a seat. Yeah. So now we're going to pull off a sensitive scab because I'm probably going to uh, ruffle some feathers here. I would say, get rid of the, I would say, get rid of the ballistic gear. Empirically, objectively, it has no efficacy, which means it doesn't do shit for you in a very simple term. Think about a plate carrier, what you typically call a bulletproof vest. Do your research on your standard plate carrier designed to cover 15% of your critical area if you are trained to square up on the threat. Are you following me? I'm following so far. I'm tracking. 
None of us are trained to square up on the threat. In a weaver or modified weaver stance, none of us are trained to do that. We are all going to get caught in a downward position overlooking a victim. We are all going to flinch and turn away. That 15% is actually going to turn into a ricochet plate. I have a number of photos from combat where a 5.56 five, or a 2.23 has either, either gone right through the plate or come off it at an angle and ricocheted back into the body. So objectively, they have crap for efficacy. Your class twos that you're typical or that you're typically wearing, they're designed to stop a pistol, a pistol. Some of them will say that they'll stop a 308, but that is a larger, slower moving ballistic. None of them are going to claim to stop a 556 or a 223. So efficacy sucks on them. They're going to slow you down. Like you said, they're hard to store. They're going to give you a false sense of security. Calling them bulletproof vests are a lot like calling our turnouts fireproof clothing, right? They only work if you know how to use them and you're trained well. So now that we've got through the objective side of it, let's talk about social identity theory. Let's talk about what they actually do for you in a negative sense on an event like this. So you know that I have a master's degree in security studies. Most of that is studying the psychology of terrorism, right, and how people think about these events. Well, most of your perpetrators view firefighters as some of the good guys. They view cops as the bad guys. Law enforcement is always default against your perpetrators, right? So you want to look as little like cops as possible. You want to look like firefighters. I would suggest you don't wear ballistic gear that makes you look like a threat or a target. Think of it this way. The person that perpetrated Oklahoma City, he thought of himself as Luke Skywalker. In his interviews, he actually thought that he was like the rebels in Star Wars fighting against the Galactic Empire. That is how a lot of the perpetrators see themselves. They see themselves as the good guy. The hero, yeah. The heroes, they always align with us because they have similarities with us. They think firefighters are good guys as well. Very few of them have any social identity drive to shoot us. But if you put on ballistics, you look like a threat and a target, and they're not going to do much for you. They're going to slow you down, and they're a piece of equipment we're typically not trained on. Also, if you're going into an environment where you think you are going to be at risk of getting shot, you shouldn't be there, right? That threat should be suppressed, right? That's your objective. Number one, go kill that dude. Send all forces to go kill that person. When that person is dead, come back and get me. At that point, I don't need ballistic gear. My principle, the problem is time. I need to control hemorrhage, excrete that victim and prep them for transport. So um, the ballistic gear is a, uh, is always a touchy conversation and I can only suggest people go do their research on it. There's governing bodies that actually um, outline the ballistic gear that you're wearing. will tell you what it does and doesn't do. I want you to review it and then ask yourself whether this is really going to do you any good and whether you're trained to use it or not. So do you think, I mean, I don't want to put you in a box, but is it more just a psychological uh, making the, the admin feel better that they did something in case? Yeah, and that's, yes, and that is what really disturbs me. As I've gone down 
you can tell I've had this argument a lot. Right. And as I go down this rabbit hole with other people, and I and I have many times, that is that is where the rabbit hole ends. Is when people typically throw their hands up and they go, "Well, I just want to give my guys something so they feel comfortable." And that's where I get a little, I actually get a little angry because I say, "Look." Your job is not to give them something to make them feel comfortable. Your job is to actually keep them safe. So tell them the truth. Tell them what they're doing and what they're not doing, right? Don't sell them any lies. Don't give them stuff to make them feel comfortable. Actually make them feel comfortable with what they're doing in their job. Make sure that your objectives are set out properly so they're not put in that position. Uh, because that is unfortunately where that conversation usually ends. Right, right. No, uh, Mark followed up said, "Interesting. Could you drop some of these resources to Corley so we can try and revisit the policies that dictate we wear them?" Just blew my mind with that answer. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can uh, I can try and drop some resources in on the uh, on the ballistics. Um, and this was a this was a rabbit hole I went down as I was guided by one of my friends who has uh, he's a former operator he's got six purple hearts he's got nine holes in them wow. right and um, he's the one that actually led me down this path he said look man they, they don't they don't we know what they do and they don't do we train with them all the time this is what you're truly faced with and when you look at the regulations and what they're actually able to do you realize yeah. If somebody shoots you with a nine millimeter and you're squared up on them and it hits the plate, you're going to take one hell of a punch, but you're going to do okay. Anything beyond that, you get, you run up against an AR-15, it's not going to do much for you. And like I said, it's going to turn into a ricochet plate and it's going to slow you down and it's going to make you look like a threat. A threat. And I want you to really consider that. I suggest Policy I wrote in Sacramento, you wear your yellows, yellow grass gear. You look like a firefighter. You actually have one other risk that's running out there that not a lot of people think about, but it's a blue on blue. That's a cop shooting you. Right, right. Right. You wear your yellow, look like a firefighter. I have seen the officers not only in drills, but I've also seen them in real life events on a mass killing. They are on edge. You think we're in gross neurological default? They're even worse than we are, right? They are on edge, and the chances of them shooting somebody that doesn't look like them that's wearing ballistic gear, it hasn't happened that I know of, but it puts you in that lane. I don't want you in. I want you in yellows looking like a firefighter. You are the innocent dude there to save lives. Beautiful. I love the answer. Uh, Lots of stuff coming in. Lots of stuff coming in. Uh, especially the part about the, the grass gear. I love that, man. I'm going to actually, uh, is it possible, do you think, to get Sacramento's SOP? Or is that? No, is see that... what I can do. Okay. Yeah. okay. I didn't know if it was under lock and key yeah. or. Well, awesome. and, and uh, you know, there's also an, an excellent after action review after the K Street killing where all of this was tested in real life. And we can talk about that in the real findings. Um, but grass gear came out after letting the firefighters choose their solution. Principle, the time, the principle, the problem is time. What are you fastest in? Not your turnouts. Oh, no. Hell no. Yeah. Right? What are you going to wear? We're going to wear our yellows or we're going to wear our safety boots. Golden, go. Keep your times down. Save some lives. Right? That person has been killed. 
They're either killed or they're locked down. The threat has been suppressed. You know how we know that? Because we sent every officer with a gun into a contact team straight towards the stimulus. And they are done, which means now we have some high number of people bleeding out. We're on the clock and we got to stop hemorrhaging. Yep. And the sooner we get the victims out and the sooner we get ourselves out, the safer it is for everybody. So I, I'll just I'll just kick it straight to K Street and say what was the findings there? You, you alluded to it, so go ahead. Yeah, so um, this was the big chunk of our presentation at MSAC. I co-presented with Dr. Mackey, uh, who is a real doctor, right? I'm the research doctor. Uh, he was the medical director for SAC at the time of the K Street shooting. K Street shooting was 19 victims spread out over five blocks. Um it was on the tail end of all of this training. So our firefighters, our battalion chiefs and our captains, they were domain experts on this and they started moving victims immediately. First seven minutes, they were already in ambulances and going right. They transported all victims in less than 30 minutes. Everybody that got into the back of an ambulance survived. We had all victims off scene prior to SPD actually having a perimeter. We operated right where we were knew we were supposed to be. We were in a secure zone, not a clear zone, and it wasn't safe, but it was secure. It was secured by the contact team out of the state capitol who are the CHP, like the CHP special forces. They come out with long rifles. They secured the scene for us. Our firefighters in the after action review, we did a full gap analysis where we analyzed their organizational support that was provided to them. We analyzed their motivation, which is their self-efficacy. Did they think they could succeed? And we analyzed all their levels of knowledge of what they thought they needed to do. We did it through survey and we did it through a series of interviews, right? So we surveyed everybody on scene. We interviewed everybody on scene so we could figure out where our gaps were. Almost every comment was, yeah, I knew exactly what to do. Sailors told me, control the bleeding and move the victim. If I do nothing but that, I'm going to win. And they did that. They did that in mass chaos. There was something like 15,000 people on the streets spread out after a large event. There was 19 victims. um, And they did it. And the after action review, one of the direct quotes from the battalion chief who was in the command post said, No, we had just done this training for years. We knew exactly what our operational objectives were. Suppress the threat. Well, CHP suppressed the threat. Now our job is to control the hammer to start moving the victims. So the interesting find about the K Street killing was the counterfactual. Everybody that got into the ambulance survived. All of them have major trauma. All victims were off scene in a timely manner under that 45 minutes. If we had gone into a diamond formation, we would have transported nobody because they all would have died before we got to them. Moving in a diamond formation across five blocks to 19 victims wouldn't have got us anybody. If we had done a traditional MCI and laid out tarps and brought all victims to tarps and then started organizing them in the year start RPM, you know, criteria, red, yellow, they all would have died. We would have transported nobody. And as predicted, there were no walking wounded. They left. There were a lot of people. There was nine people that self-transported themselves to the hospital in cars, some of them with chest wounds. The walking wounded left. What those firefighters were faced with were the people that couldn't, the 19 that were left on the ground. One of them got seven chest seals. He had that many holes in him. Wow. So the K Street 
killing really emphasized the efficacy of the training, right? The battalion chiefs knew exactly what to do. The firefighters knew what to do. The captains knew what to do. It was chaotic. It was hectic. Some of the crowd was hostile, but it was secure. They controlled the hemorrhage. They transported the victim. And they had success. And they had success. It was as good as it could have gone. Wow. No, that's, that's a, that, that's a powerful testament to all the work that went into it. It is. It is. I hope they never get tested again. No doubt. No, I think that's the key for, I mean, I'm obviously that's, that would, that would be mm-hmm. ideal for everyone. Uh, and yeah. So, uh, Mark alone said on the other end of the spectrum, have you ever run a drill on these scenarios utilizing, uh, the actual available units for time of day and ETA, uh, drill yes. seem to put everyone on site in a manner that isn't realistic. Oh, dude, that is that is such a great observation. You want to run a crap drill? Line everybody up. Launch your launch your uh, your drones in the air. Get your EOC opened up. Get all your air, and then run the drill. That is the worst case scenario. No, um, almost every drill started with some sort of delayed response, and then one day we did it for real in a nightclub. So it was a Sunday morning where we were able to do it. A nightclub owner gave us his nightclub and we brought in cops who were cold and firefighters who were cold. We put 56 live people in this nightclub uh, Sunday morning. Nobody knew it was going to happen. We brought in the beat cops and we told them, hey, there's a stimulus. You hear it? It's a drill. Go get them. And we rolled in the firefighters. Now, this isn't a downtown core of Sacramento, so response times were fairly fast. But we rolled them in cold, and they knew exactly what to do. And we did. We videotaped it. We recorded everything. We always find gaps. We always find things that we can do better, right? And every time we find a gap, we readdress it in training. But the reality was, was when they showed up and we told them, you got an IMCI. Cops just went in. And they could hear the gunfire in the nightclub. They lined up in what we call a rescue strike team. They got a rescue unit leader standing in front. They all got their yellows. They had their pow bags and their foxtrots. And when the law enforcement escort came out and said, yeah, he's dead. Come in. We'll take you to the victims. They followed him in. They put on tourniquets to control massive hemorrhage. And they pulled the victims out into the evac zone in the street. They set up an evac zone and they started calling in ambulances. And they called for the appropriate resources immediately. That's awesome. So, go ahead. I say it's a great question, and um, and not few things anger me more than those drills. Those drills that he just described, where you line, where you line all the chess pieces up on the board exactly where you want them, and then you say go. Well, that's just setting you up for failure in real life. Love it, love it. Um, Speaking of the the line, uh, have you discovered anything on like EMS transport? How sometimes it can become a giant clog uh, in and out. egress ingress to get to the patients or is that something in the priority list at all or something you've identified? Yeah, you're going to have to uh, work your way around that. So, you know, um, the Aurora theater shooting is probably your great example of that. When you have a choke point coming into one large area and um, you are up against uh, law enforcement cars or cop cars. Uh, we did have a church shooting with five victims and uh, we were totally boxed out because of the number of cop cars. Uh, The way the cop cars eventually got moved was uh, the actual police helicopter started announcing over the loudspeaker, hey, so-and-so car, you need to move. 
Um, but with the rescue strike team, our firefighters were so well trained in this arena that they got as close as they could. They got their fox trots, their pal kits, they formed up, and then they went in as as a team. And when the vehicles got moved, they just got the ambulances as close as they could. Uh, so that. those choke points are going to have to be something that you're going to flex around. But as long as you know what your operational objectives are, you'll develop tactical objectives that actually fit and meet that. Love it. Um, and I'm getting a lot of questions. So people that missed the intro, yes, he's not just a doctor. He is a firefighter. 28 years. Uh, is it still 28 or is it longer now? Uh, you know what? It's more now. It's more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm more of a firefighter than I am a doctor. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I started in the fire service uh, at a small uh, two agents, two station agency, and then I went to Sacramento City. You know, it's a little over 500 firefighters, and I spent 25 years there. And I worked my way up, you know, to assistant chief. Um, and then I just recently left. I just hit my one year anniversary as the chief of uh, Kensington El Cerrito. That's awesome. Did I say it right when I entered Cerrito? Is that what it is? You, you did. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. Kensington El Cerrito. Yes. Uh, Kensington is. Yep. Congratulations on the chief, by the way. Can, and here's the thing most people don't know. I very rarely have the big chiefs on the scrap. So you're in very elite oh. company. So well, very rarely the big like, chiefs have anything interesting to say. So I can there's only been why. like five, I think, out of 200 episodes. And you're like number five, maybe number six. I'd have to actually go and count. But very few. Well, yeah. I'm more of a truck captain still than I am as a big chief. So uh, that's just where my mindset tends to fall. But, yeah, okay. So where were we at? Uh, the K Street, we got that. Yes. Uh, ambulances, 90% of what we do. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, I wish this was mandatory for online training at our departments. Absolutely. Make it happen. Make them watch. Spread the scrap, especially when you have something that uh, is like this. Um, perfect. Okay. Back to what we were talking about. You, you talked about, man, I want to get to that. Um, because I want to really talk about the, I keep dropping the, the term for it, but the strike teams. Um, yeah. Explain the difference between the diamond formation and the strike teams, and uh, that. In fact, I'll put the. I'm going to put a link to the article. Sam will put a link to the article, and the article is called. As I do terrible here, rescue task force is not a strategy; it is a tactic. It's a phenomenal read, man. Just read this, and you get into the tactics versus strategy discussion on this, which applies to everything, by the way, not just what we're talking about. It's, it's a great article. So take your time and read it when you get a chance. Um, and go ahead, Eric. I will. I, and, and again, my caveat is if you have a direction you want to go, take off. No, no. I'm going to tell you another story, right? Perfect. You remember stories. I love stories. So let's, let's come out of Columbine. And uh, you've got two working problems at Columbine. One, law enforcement has no idea how to deal with an escalating event. They're accustomed to pushing the pause button and doing a top-down control on every call. So they push the pause button on Columbine. They put snipers up on the roof while those two shooters go through that school and they kill people. Fire gets left out of the picture for a long time before anything happens. Well, coming out of Columbine in the 90s, how is fire going to respond to this? And you have, I want you to recognize this in the fire service, there's theoretical ideas and then there's practical solutions. They don't always match up. So you get a theoretical idea uh, based on diplomatic protection. And it's a little bit of let's make the firefighters feel good. So let's 
put them in what's called diplomatic protection and run backwards. Diplomatic protection is what the State Department will use to escort diplomats out of the threat zone, right? So they'll surround them in a diamond formation and they'll bring them out of the threat zone. Well, this theoretically is ran backwards. So you will surround firefighters with law enforcement. Some of them even call themselves meat shields, which is a terrible way to look at a human being. And we'll run it backwards and we'll bring you into the threat zone. So theoretically, it meets its first objective, which is trying to get firefighters to the victims. Um, and it gets some traction because it's the only solution out there. Right. right. Nobody has ever thought of anything else. So all things in the fire service evolve. And this slowly started to evolve when people started to figure out that it just didn't work. Right. Objectively, it was not meeting any of your objectives. It was way too slow. It wasn't getting victims there. So coming out of the long experiment in Sacramento, we looked at this and well, this is a this is a rescue task force. A task force is as a mixed group of units, right? Law enforcement and fire. And it's based on diplomatic protection. We effectively shifted to a strike team, which is like units, right? Firefighters working in the firefighter group, cops working in a cop group doing their job. And we moved to what's technically called an inkblot tactic. So opposed to diplomatic protection running backwards, we go to an inkblot where the cops go in, they control the territory. Once the territory is controlled, the logistics can operate freely in the background. Well, that's us. And that's what we found. Firefighters need freedom of movement. They need to be able to get to their victims and pull them out. They don't operate well in a diamond formation unless they have a ton of training. But it's very hard to train a large number of firefighters to do that well. But if you simply control the environment in an ink blot, you can bring them in behind you and they can operate within your indirect threat zone, get to the victims and get out. So we use that terminology rescue strike team because you're now in like a strike team of units, but you're in a strike team of firefighters, all yellows, all lined up, all ready to go. You're no longer moving with the cops. You're simply getting escorted in to their secure corridor to where the victims are. Right. So like all things, it evolves. And I'm sure the rescue strike team will evolve as well. There are no perfect answers there. The job is to keep getting better and evolving with the environment. But that's how you go from an RTF to an RST. Gotcha. No, I love it. I love it, man. And the article is great. Um, and uh, and there's a book that is coming. You want to talk about yeah. that? Yeah, I want to hear about that a little bit. Go ahead. So I teach a lot of command and control classes uh, on high-rise firefighting and large uh, commercial operations. And I was asked to write a chapter on how to manage intentional IMCIs for a command and control book that's coming out and it's going to be published by um, Firehouse Magazine. So um, I sent that uh, article off. It's a chapter on how to do this. I actually don't know what the final title of the book is going to be. I don't know if they've settled on it, but it'll be a command and control in the chapter will reiterate everything that you've heard in this podcast. You're just getting it first. A little sneak peek because, yeah, a lot of these questions I'm asking uh, came from uh, sneak peek. And it's it's a it was a, like I said, eye opening to me on certain things um, secured, cleared and safe. How we need to adopt common terminology. I mean, yeah. if we can't do it across the entire fire service, at least at the very least, we all need to be on the same page in our own jurisdictions. But secured, uh, secure, cleared and safe. All right. Yeah. So let's go through this. So we're looking for a common operating picture, right? We need a common op operating picture so that when we say something across the radio, we all know what it means. 
None of these are safe. They're not going to be safe. Don't expect them to be safe. Even at the Pulse nightclub, when the guy's locked down in the bathroom and he's in negotiations, he tells the guys that he's negotiating with that he has pipe bombs in the back of his car, right? You look at Aurora Theater shooting. If you study that case, he comes out dressed as a SWAT team member, and after they take him down, they find his apartment, which is rigged to blow up. None of these are safe. You're not looking for safe. You're also not looking for cleared. Cleared takes too long. Cleared is a full methodical search. If you're looking for cleared, you might as well just write your victims off. They're going to die. That is a full methodical search by a straight, by a trained team. You're looking for secure. Your good definition of secure is the ability to return effective fire. That means that you have somebody with you with a gun and the threat has been suppressed. So that terminology really clarifies it for the firefighters. Nope. Is that area secured or not? If it's not secured, I'm not going. If it's secured, then we're ready to go get victims. That gives you a clear operating picture. When that terminology is used with the police department as well, it makes it much easier because they'll even confuse themselves with cleared versus secured. But they're looking for secure as well because they'll tell you, yeah, Secured means we're going to search everything. And that's what happened at Columbine, right? They're trying to clear the rooms. They're searching cabinets. Right. And it just turns into moving the wrong way against what your operational objectives are. You are not up against time. You're not meeting your time problem now, right? Right. You are now burning it for some useless event. So, all right. So we got through victim versus patients. We got through secure versus safe versus clear. Uh, before we go on to the zones, uh, see if there's anything else that anybody has questions on that. Uh, I got a couple coming at you. Uh, mm-hmm. Mark alone asked earlier about the uh, ballistic gear and whatnot, but he also said, is there an industry, and he put it in quotation marks, standard on RTF, RST, or even active shooter? Is there any sort of industry standard? The best industry standard is the NFPA 3000 Asher document that is in evolution. You've got to give NFPA a ton of props for taking this on in a short period of time after Las Vegas. You also got to give them a lot of grace in the fact that this is going to take, uh, this is going to take some time to evolve and bring in all this information in California. You also have fire scope working on it and they are, they're integrating these standards as well. Um, but I presented this data and this methodology to the center for Homeland defense and security um, a few years ago, and it is starting to roll out through the federal through your federal entities that are starting to say it like this and play it like this uh, in their training. We just saw that recently at the Livermore Labs and the Berkeley Labs. The feds came in and ran a drill, and it was almost like it was me talking. They have adopted it well enough. So you got to be you be patient with it, but um, hopefully we will develop some solid industry standards that are clear. And this is my ignorance, but NFPA 3000, is that out or is that you said that's in production or in evolution? No, it is out. It's out. It was. And they'll tell you, they'll tell you straight up, like they wrote it very quickly. It's the fastest, uh, it's the fastest standards that NFPA has ever turned around. They pulled in some really good people, a quick ad hoc uh, thing, Um, but they'll, they're going to keep updating it. Okay. Okay. Beautiful. And you, if you feel like it's moving towards the, the, the very much the clarity of time Stop the hemorrhage yeah. and get them transferred. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They're, fight, they're, they're fighting their way through it. Yep. How does Sacramento or how did Sacramento handle hospital designation and transport decisions in the MCI active shooter situation? Well, 
how they handle it theoretically and how they handle it in real life are two different things. Theoretically, they're supposed to contact UC Davis, which is their disaster control facility, and then receive destinations um, as the victims are loaded up. However, they will not delay transport waiting for a destination. Said in another way, if UC Davis or the disaster control facility can't keep up, we are not waiting for them. The victim has to get to a hospital. And we know where the trauma centers are. We know how to get to them. Um, so, and that is pretty standard across the state of California, a disaster control facility to try to wrap their hands around it. They'll take a census from their local hospitals so they know what they can get and what they can't get. And then they'll try and divert the ambulances off to where the hospitals can handle them. Unfortunately, real life didn't read that playbook in what tends to unravel the hospitals is the self-transports, right? Mm -hmm. So when that initial disaster control facility says take a census of its 10 hospitals that it has in a region that it can transport to, that census is almost always wrong because you'll have seven or eight show up right. in either right. back of cop cars or personal vehicles that screws up that census anyways. And what you don't want to have happen is people bleeding to death in the back of your ambulance why the, while the BCF is trying to figure this out. That is not, that is not the path to success. Right on. Right on. Uh, they're, they're better off in the parking lot of a hospital than they are on scene. Beautiful. Uh, so zones of operation. You, 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 yeah, you, let's do zones of operation. So, okay. um, so I might ruffle some feathers here again. I'm just going to tell you what I found and, uh, and where to go from here. So hot, warm, cold causes some problems. And those okay. terminologies, um, they caused some problems on some real life calls, specifically the Pulse nightclub. So, and it is, it is the fire service's fault uh, because they pulled from a hazmat metaphor, right? They, they wanted to look at these events and they said, oh, well, we'll just use the same terminology we use from hazmats. We'll call them hot, warm, cold. Well, hot, warm, cold and hazmat, it draws concentric circles. It's based on a physical phenomena that we can model and we know how it works uh, it does not change to our actions, meaning it's not an intelligent actor that is going to go the opposite way. And um, the concentric circles get larger as they go out. There is no cold zone on an active shooter. I don't know why we even got there. There's a cold zone on a hazmat. I can tell you pretty much where it is. I can modelize it. Here's the warm zone. Here's the cold zone. Here's where the intra team's going in. Here's where decon's mm -hmm. going to happen. That's not an active shooter. There is no cold zone. So trying to pull this story about part, like, how did we get here? Because in Las Vegas, the shooting there, you wind up with a four-mile hot zone. Well, if you use that, that's a totally useless terminology because that means no EMS or fire can go within four miles of the event. That's not useful terminology. So digging back into the research, we found the original terminology that came out of TCCC. And remember, TCCC is that tactically casualty combat care that came out of the medics out of the Black Hawk Down event. Their original terminology was direct threat, indirect threat, and evac zone. So, oh, that actually makes a ton of sense because you know what? There is no cold zone. That doesn't exist, but there sure shit better be an evac zone. Right, right. <laughs> right? You better have a spot on the X you're trying to get the victims to. And direct threat and indirect threat, they draw lines of fire. They don't draw concentric circles. So you don't run into the problem with the Pulse nightclub where the whole area is a hot zone. No, actually, you have lines of fire. And if you're not in the line of fire, you're in the indirect threat zone. And if that zone's secured, 
then go get your victims, right? So in theory, you can be very close to the bad guy, but the bad guy's on the other side of a cinder block wall. Well, that's the direct threat zone. You don't want to be there, but you're in the indirect threat zone where the victims are. You start grabbing. You start grabbing. Now, that terminology clarified things for a lot of firefighters in our region because they would just peel over hot, warm, cold, and it would confuse them. When we got down to no look, direct threat and indirect threat, you do not go into the line of fire, right? We are going to run you in the indirect threat zone. Is it safe? No. We already know that. It's never going to be safe. But there's no cold zone either. Right. You're going from indirect threat out to the evac zone. Pick it and start moving. And that's where the ambulances are headed. No casualty collection points. No CCPs, right? Um, we don't know how to manage those. Those are a totally different skill set. It's like we picked up a term that nobody knew what it meant. But the reality is that the casualty collection point is a very unique event that would happen that requires specific equipment and management skills. The only thing that I could think of theoretically that we would run into a casualty collection point is in a high rise, where if you were running a series of elevators and you had something like 30 victims and you only get five on each, you would have a choke point at the elevators right. and you'd have a casualty collection point, right? But in the other event where you have freedom of movement, no casualty collection points, go from where the victim is where the victim is and get them to the evac zone straight run. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So going, going back to the original T triple C terminology, man, it ended a lot of arguments and it clarified a lot of things for the firefighters of, Oh, now I understand. Now we actually ran that in a drill um, working up in difficulties in drills. One of the hardest events you get to is the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. Reason being is that it's a 45 minute gunfight on the second floor down a hallway, which is a kill zone for the cops. One of the SWAT team members actually takes high in the shoulder. Um, and it is a five, five, six that gets him, So it tumbles through his arms. He, he survives because he has good tourniquet application, but here's what's challenging about that drill for the firefighters is they want to go into that hallway and get that downed cop. But we trained them, don't go into the line of fire. You're just going to wind up more victims, right? So the understanding of a direct threat, an indirect threat zone in this scenario and in this particular drill, the firefighters would come to the top of the stairs and then they would stop. And then the cops would go get the down cop, bring them to them. They would be in the direct threat zone. That's their job. That's where they operate. And then we would move that victim out. Right. So that terminology made that drill successful. If we were running hot, warm, cold, we would have never made it up those stairs or anywhere near that cop. And we wouldn't have saved his, you know, we wouldn't have saved his proverbial life in the drill. In the drill. Right. Yeah. In the drill. <laughs> but yeah, that understanding of, oh, wow, do not go into the direct threat zone. You are, you're going to wind up another victim and you're going to get in the way of the cops. Love it, man. I absolutely love it. I think we might have covered the key findings from the MSAC seven year study. Is there anything we missed in the key findings? Um, no, let me, uh, oh yeah. The ACE acronym. Okay. So this was a collaboration between, uh, the medical director and the disaster control facility and, uh, some of our combat operators. And the question came up, our times on the drills were so fast that we were actually beating the ambulances because we modeled everything out. We ran it fair. As to the point to that other question, I didn't line up. 10 ambulances at the drill. That's not how we did it. We said, no, look, we're going to dispatch when you call and we're going to send them 
from the station that they're at. And I'm going to cut the number of ambulances in half because I'm going to assume half of them are on the wall time, right? So I'm going to take a realistic picture. Well, what we found is that when we were getting all the victims out into the street in less than 12 minutes, times six, we were ahead of our ambulances, right? The victims are coming out on triage, but we wanted to have a clear choice on who goes first, given the choice. So we use one of the firefighters as the evac group, area group manager. And what they did was as victims rolled out of the building, they sorted them based on the ACE acronym, abdominal chest extremities. So he would actually yell ahead in the drills, hey, what do you got? You got an abdominal, go over here. All abdominal wounds, if you have an abdominal wound, you go over here. Given the choice, abdominal wounds go first. They're the ones that need surgery. Non-compressible, it's bleeding, right? Next, chest. They go next. Non-compressible, but you got a chest wall that might buy you a little bit of time. Last, extremities. All extremities over here, they'll go last. And yes, for those that are going to ask, a head wound is an extremity. Because it's typically one of two things. It's either a big bleeder with a shot to the scalp or it's gray matter. And either one is going to be transported last. So the ACE acronym um, helped solve that triage and that sorting problem and got the appropriate people to the hospitals first. Nice. Nice. No, I love it. And, of course, if you have abdomen, chest, and extremity, you're going first because you have abdomen. Because you have abdomen. Yes, that's where you Yep, yep. You go to the abdomen area. And when an ambulance rolls up, I'm going to tell them, I'm going to tell them, you don't take one patient. You take two victims, right? Because when patients, we have patient care, we have patient standards. In California, we have Title 22 that regulate patient care. But we don't have victims. You're taking two victims, move them, roll them out. They'll become patients when they get to the hospital. Beautiful. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to get more information and links and I'll post them up here on, on everything I can, I can pit, I can pry out of Eric's mind. Uh, but, uh, I love this question. I don't know where it's going to go, but, uh, I always love to ask about book or books that you think firefighters should be reading. Cause all we've really touched on tonight is your, uh, MCI, IMCI specifically response and all yeah. the work you did. You've got such a breadth of, uh, uh knowledge on so many other topics that we're going to have to, we're going to have to talk again on like su- succession planning or organizational yeah. leadership at some point, just to, in culture. I mean, I would love to pick your brain on it, but not the point, uh, back to books. I love finding out book or books that you think firefighters should be reading does not have to be firefighting books. Yeah. So, if you're if you're moving up in rank and you're going to become a supervisor or manager, lieutenant, captain, BC, you should read Team of Teams. Uh, McChrystal's Team of Teams, I'll just continue to recommend that. It's going to lay out some basic principles for you on leadership, on bringing people together, right? Uh, how not to do it, because we have a lot of how not to do it in the fire service. But this is going to actually, you know, confront you with these ideas of transparency, trust, common mission, empowered execution, right? Go do it. Right. Um, If you're interested in the political environment and you're moving up higher than that, I suggest you read Dictator's Handbook. Because if you truly find yourself in a bind and you need to pull on the political strings, Dictator's Handbook will present something to you called selectorate theory. Selectorate theory is, they call it the theory of everything. It'll tell you that elected officials, they have two goals in life, to obtain power and remain in power. And your job is to figure out how to pull those strings to get them to get the answers you want out of them, right? As I say, I'm actually the, I'm actually the chief of two fire departments now. One's a special district, one's a city. 
And my job is to figure out which strings I need to buy a minimum of three votes on both boards. Nice. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, I love it. And, and it becomes important. Look, I'm just here to make sure that the firefighters have the proper training, the proper equipment, and a mentor. Those are the three things that keep you alive on the first day of the job, right? So I've got to figure out how to pull those political strings to make sure that I'm achieving those, right? Got to, yeah. you got to have the right equipment. you got to have the right training, and you got to have a good mentor. And that, all that takes a ton of resources, right? No doubt, no doubt. A dictator's Handbook, do you happen to know the author offhand? No, I don't, but okay. it is it is in the reading list, and I can uh, I can send it to you again. Yeah, but I'm sure Google will find it. I mean, it's a pretty yeah. unique unique name. It is. Uh, it's out of yeah two two professors out of Berkeley that, that okay. Wrote it. Yeah. What else? Uh, any? Other, I don't want to cut you off. I love uh, you know I mean, the, my the reading line. my reading list is like at 80 books planned to read, and I just keep I just added another one, so 81 technically. But go you ahead, gotta, you got to switch to Audible, man. <laughs> I, I, believe me, believe me. It's I use my my tokens yeah. every month and usually buy another one. So I added I added a new one to the uh, to the book called uh, the Lucifer Effect. Um, this is written by the by the man that ran the Stanford Prison Experiment, and um, it will tell you basically. And if you're looking to become a leader or manager again, that humans don't behave based on their morals or characters; they behave based on their environment. And you build that environment, and if you're getting weird behavior, you have ownership in it. Right. So the Lucifer effect will lay out event after event where good people do bad things. Wow. And if you were thinking about what's wrong with your agency or how to steer your agency, that book is going to give you some answers. Right. The Lucifer effect. And it is how good people do really bad things. And I I hate it when management pushes down and says, well, I can't believe these guys are doing that. No, actually, management, you have partial ownership in that because you're creating the environment that is allowing it to happen. If you don't want it to happen, start working on the environment Change that you created, right? Wow. So Lucifer Effect, written by a Stanford psychologist, Professor Phil Zimbardo. He's very famous. Um, you know, it's just not something I'm – you're, you're pulling out of your butt as a good idea. No, actually, here's empirical evidence, uh, real studies. So, yeah, Lucifer Effect has become very popular with the people in the secession project, right? The, the captains that I've been mentoring up into the chief ranks, right? I threw that into the reading list, and all of a sudden that became a new favorite as they read the nice. like, Oh, my gosh. This is why we do so many bad things. <laughs> well, it's part of the problem. Yeah, create the environment so they'll have better behavior. How dense is that one? How, I mean, is it is it pretty lengthy? It's or? a pretty it's a pretty easy read. Okay, um, good, good. I, I score those on accessibility, and some of them are really hard reads. Right, uh, Lucifer Effect is not is not a hard read, and and uh, he'll walk you through some uh, events that you remember in the news, and you'll go, oh yeah, I remember that. And you're like, oh damn, they did create that environment. And that was totally predictable that they would do that. I love this book. And you also score your books. I remember that because you took yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, I remember that last I time. I score them based on difficulty. Yes. And, right. I, and I think Lucifer Effect is like a five. I score them on difficulty, relevance, and then academic rigor, right? Because if you actually get pulled to the carpet and somebody, you know, you, you don't want to bring Jocko Willett in if you get pulled to the carpet, right? Yeah. He's a great storyteller. And he's got like, a great philosophy and it's awesome. But there's no empirical evidence there, right? There, you can't go and cite that study through Google Scholar, right? Right. 
Um, but yeah, you want to dig into Philip Zimbardo? You want to go out to Stanford and see some of his? Yeah, go right ahead, man. You can you can go to the carpet with that one. No, I remember because you I, you had one that was like a very difficult read, but it had had high rankings, and I, I forget which one it was. If you said it, I would. It, I might have been playing on your houses. Oh yeah, that was. And I was like challenge, challenge accepted. I will check yes, this out. I still don't think book. I finished it. It's not on Audible. One of the hardest books you'll ever read, but you know when you realize that the direction of the nation changed because they cut fire service out of South Bronx in the 1960s. And you've got two PhDs laying this out for you in network theory. And you go, holy crap, the fire service is really important. It is critical services. It is critical infrastructure. You cut it out of New York and South Bronx in the 1960s. And in the 80s, New York becomes the most dangerous city in the country. And L.A. is having color wars because you cut the fire service out. That, that's why that's such an incredible read. It's just written by two PhDs that, you know, they write in academic terms and it's very hard to read. But just getting the, the concept down, the idea down of there are consequences right, right, to right. what happens. Love it. Well, I'm I'm excited about Lucifer Lucifer effect. I really am. That one sounds uh, that one highly intrigues me. Dictator's Handbook also. Um, we have a thing we do, and the first time you everybody who doesn't know he was number thirty six. Uh, weekly scrap number thirty six. Very early on, like the twenty fifth guest maybe of the scrap ever. Um, but so I, you you had the original five questions for firefighters back then. They were pretty new at the time. Uh, but since then we've gone through two evolutions, and now we're on the five Q three the five questions for firefighters version 3.0. And so my question for you is, and of course I have to always tell people there is no right answers. It's only your opinion. They're scored by me with the help of the audience. Uh, So my question for you, chief Eric sailors is, are you ready for the next five questions for firefighters version 3.0? Let's see how we do. This is like jeopardy. (laughs) I haven't even pre-studied. Hit me. (laughs) Number one, what is the skill that has carried you through your fire service career? Listening, listening tied to empathy, right? Because as a firefighter, I had to have empathy for the people that were trying to lead me, sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing, but having empathy in the fact that they are held politically accountable, not professionally accountable like you are. You're held professionally accountable as a firefighter, an engineer, and a captain. Uh, Your leaders are typically held politically accountable. And that listening skills, everything. And then it swapped um, when I became a battalion chief and then up into the executive management listening as well. Because for those managers out there, remember, second, you step off the line, you're no longer facing the problem, right? You're facing a political problem, but you have to listen to the people that are fighting the new problem that you've stepped away from, right? They're going to tell you what they need. They might not know the right terms. They may not be as articulate as you want, but they're going to give you a conditions report. You have to listen to it. And that is your key to success. That's been, that's been my key to success, just empathy and listening and taking it in and saying, you know what, what I thought was wrong. I actually agree with what you just said. And we're going to pivot based on that. That is beautiful. I'll give you max point. Yeah. The the audience says max points. Uh, a condition report, but the ability to hear it, the listening, the empathy. Man, I'm telling you, that's beautiful. Yeah, uh, yeah. I love the answer. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna back that up with an example. Nope. I spent six years on the ambulance. Was very hard. They were average six thousand calls a year, right? So twenty calls a day. I, I thought I had it hard, but you know what? I didn't have. 
I didn't have wall times. I didn't have an electronic PCR that sucks so much that it took me 30 minutes to get through every tag, right? So I had to listen to the firefighters and not the initial responses. Don't tell me how hard it is. I know I lived it. No, actually, I didn't live it. What I had was hard. What they have now is even harder, right? And it takes all of my effort to make sure that I can reduce that pain on them. So for those I love leaders, that whole thing it? about uh, you're no longer fighting the problem. You got to listen to the people who are fighting the problem. You now. are not. Yep. You are not facing the problem. Nope. Woo. Okay. Number two, what is the most important soft skill? This may be just tied right into it, but yeah. most important soft skill to possess in a leadership position. Now I'm going to say communication, right? Since we already did listening, but okay. look, solving the problem is one thing communicating it is another and you have to have a ton of humility because you may use language that you think works. I used to joke, I spoke English. I was very clear about when I said it, but it still didn't happen. I never put it on the receiver. I always put it on me. I'm like, that's my fault. I have to figure out how to bring those visions and those objectives to the firefighters that are actually doing it and communication Every leadership book, every leadership theory is always going to land back on that, regardless of how brilliant you are. If you can't communicate it, you lose. Game over, done. And you have to be humble. Communication is not an easy thing. It's not simply you saying what you think is right. It is you figuring out how to package it so that it's received well and so that they actually do what is in their best interest. Boom. Nate Sturm said, Max Daggums. Communication starts everything. You got Max Daggums, Max Points, done. Max Daggums. Two for two. Two for two. And that's a pretty good Daggum coming from California. That's not bad. <laughs> two for two on the Max Points. Okay. No pressure. Number three, what is your favorite fire service tradition? Lunch and dinner, eating together. There's nothing better than breaking bread. There's nothing better than sitting down and talking, right? Sharing the days. I, you know, you joke, telling the lies and the stories, right? But that's where the culture is made. And culture is how we get things done, right? Very rarely in a table, table board or after action review are we honest about what happens. But the dinner table is where it happens. And you know what else happens at the dinner table that is so important to surviving this career is reframing. We joke with each other. We laugh. Every call that we go on, almost every call is a tragedy. And there's no way you get back on that rig for the next dead five-year-old out of the pool if you can't figure out how to reframe that tragedy into something else. If you can't figure out how to laugh with each other and enjoy the day with each other, that's how you get through this career. So sitting down at lunch and dinner, it's like a little bit of a timeout. Hey, we're human beings again. Let's laugh about this. Let's be honest about it. I'm going to tease you. You're going to tease me, right? You're going to tell me how it really was not at the tailboard where everything was awesome. We all high-fived. No, we're actually saying, you know what? I actually think I could have done that better. Right. And I think that tradition of eating together at lunch and dinner is what carries the culture forward because I don't see any other avenue where it happens. Love it. Dude, three for three, max points, easy for me. Because uh, you said it is where we build. It's where the culture is built. I mean, it is, it is. there. It yeah. is. 
Mike's it is where it is where indoctrination happens. You bring on that twenty-five-year-old proby. Guess what they're learning? They are learning at the dinner table right there. That is how this agency does this. That's right perfect. No, it says I love family time. Best thing about my new house, Max Points. Chad Bootstein says the truth in that answer is astonishing. Nicholas Gwynn said Max Points. Jim Platt said Max Points with four bomb bursts. So truth, bomb. <laughs> three for three. Moving through number four. Let's quit. Let's quit now. <laughs> I like this question. I get all sorts of good answers off this question. And and the cool part is the regions make it different each time. And I hear names that I haven't heard and I didn't know. But number four is who are the four people you would put on your Mount Rushmore of the fire service? Mm, I wouldn't. Oh. I'd put generations on there. Oh. Like like the lost soldiers of our wars. Nobody did this alone. Nobody in the fire service was a hero by themselves. We all worked as a team. And what I would do is I would put generations up there so that you could look and see what the people before us faced, right? And I would make it the nameless soldier, the faceless soldier, right? So you could have appreciation for the guys in the late 1800s that fought those fires to the people in the 50s and then in the 70s and then into our petroleum-based fires now, right? Because it's the reiteration that none of us survived this alone. Everybody is standing on the backs of giants. I didn't learn this stuff by myself. I learned it from others that taught it to me and I just simply do my best to regurgitate it and pass it on and maybe think about one neat thing after all it's been washed around for so many years. But yeah, that's it. I initially was going to say, no way. If you're not going to give me them, you don't get the points, but man, that's a great, great answer, man. Uh, especially when you when you put the faceless, so you're still putting it up there, but it's the faceless soldier, the nameless soldier, man. Yeah, Marco Rodriguez says this this guy's a heavy hitter. <laughs> drop <laughs> drop the mic. Great answer. Max points. Mic drop. Preach. Beautiful answer. Yeah. When you first said none, I was like, wait a second, non-answer. Oh no, yeah, yeah. Well, oh. you know, you know, I'm gonna ruffle feathers. Yeah. <laughs> Eric the Viking showed up. No, yeah, dude. Eric the Viking showed up. He's been to war. He's gonna tell you how it is. <laughs> Max points. I loved it. Uh, number five. Final question. The question. The question that's never changed. You have heavy fire and searchable space. Would you rather be assigned to the nozzle or first in on a VES? Nozzle again. I know that you asked me this question again, and I'm going to say the same answer. Putting the fire out stops the problem. I and even it. though I was a truck engineer and a truck through for so many years, I still acknowledge putting the fire out stops the problem. It is all about the nozzle. From the nozzle backwards to the engineer, to the captain, they're all there just simply to serve that nozzle, right? And even the truck crew, I used to call them as myself, they are the support service for that nozzle, whether it's ventilation, whether it's utilities, whether it's going in for search, it all comes back to that nozzle. I so same answer as before. Same answer. And the consistency is there because you never know. It's been a couple of years. So you might have you might have said, hey, this time I'm going the other direction. But no, absolutely. That officially makes it five for five max points. Chief Eric Sailors, that officially makes it 206 scraps in the books. That's impressive for you. That's impressive. 
I'm, I'm very proud. Very, and I'm very diligent, strong. That's amazing. Uh, what an amazing evening. Thank you for sharing the evening with us. First of all, if someone wants to get a hold of you, reach out for more information, what is the best way to do so? Hmm. Well, you can look me up on Facebook. You can look me up on LinkedIn and I'll give you my personal email address. It's esailors, E-S-A-Y-L-O-R-S, the number eight at gmail.com. Nice. There you go. Yep. You can kick your questions there and I'll get back to them as best I can. Awesome. And man, and here's the thing I want to say, I loved your answers to the five questions and not just me being hyperbolic or anything like that is I absolutely uh, like, cause tonight's scrap was very focused on IMCIs. Yeah. But you, you have, I want to bring you back again sometime, probably we'll, we'll shoot for a few months from down the road or whatever, but I would love to just go into leadership and organizational stuff and, and really, cause we kind of got a peek at it there in the five questions. Cause we got away from, you know, mass casualty and, and shooters. So uh, beautiful, brother. Beautiful. Uh, there it is. 206. Go to firehousevigilance.com. Become a vigilante. Be one of the cool kids. Uh, you can sign up for a year. You can sign up with a monthly membership. Uh, right now, there are currently 75 of the vigilantes doing the V90 challenge with me. We're working through it together. We're on day. Today was day 39. We're about to hit day 40 of the 90 day challenge. And it's fun. It's a beta. They're beta testing the pro, the process and we'll see how it turns out. So we're already making changes to it. If you want to be involved, go join up. Not only that, but you get access to the scrap after party where we get to go in and uh, critique the guest and tell him how well or bad he did. And that's coming up in just a few short minutes uh, coming up on the scrap. Do I have it up? No, I don't. But the, crew, the, the the guest lineup is unbelievable. 2023 has been absolutely crushing it. Um, I'll post the link in the Vigilantes group as soon as we go off the air. Uh, tomorrow, I fly to Somerville, South Carolina. If you're in the area, South Carolina area, Somerville, South Carolina, I'm teaching the 9Ls three days, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. Uh, it's free. All you have to do is go sign up. Again, I'll post. In fact, I have the link somewhere. I'll post the link in the chat here. Uh, I think that's all the announcements I need to make. Yeah, free free nine L's. Come check it out. Go register. I will slap link. My brother Eric Sailors, thank you for being a phenomenal guest and making Tool Six an amazing scrap. Thank you, uh, audience. Uh, I, I always tell you every week you make the scrap magical. Thank you for tuning in live and sharing your evening with me and the guest. Remember, mutts don't scrap. I hope the tone stays silent unless it is burning. Everybody, stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the weekly scrap. Please subscribe and please share. We'll see you at the next episode.